0: You're listening to KECast. I'm Andre Goulet. KECast is a monthly podcast produced by Korea Exposé. We explore Korean society, culture, and politics and highlight critical independent voices you won't find anywhere else. Look for KECast on koreaexposé.com. On this episode... a profound feeling of cultural displacement in the ethnic Korean community of Yanji in Northeast China. Landless Koreans seen as too different to become fully part of China will simultaneously not good enough to fit in in South Korea. In this conversation, writer Eddie Park joins me to discuss the Joseonjuk and his recent investigative reporting from the Yamdian Korean Autonomous Prefecture near the North Korean border. Hi, Eddie.
1: Hi, Andre. Thanks for having me.
0: South Koreans treat us like foreigners. Worse, they treat us like dogs. That's from Yi Janyan, a retired 67 year old Joseon Jok that you quote at the beginning of your piece at Korea Exposé. Too different to be Chinese, not good enough to be Korean. Joseon Jok literally means what?
1: Well, Joseon Jok is a Korean transliteration of the. Chinese name to this ethnicity, which is Chaosien So Chaos, this word is very interesting because in the Chinese language, in Mandarin, I should I say, in the Mandarin language, uh, people refer to the Korean peninsula as Chaosien. So when you're talking about, for example, you know, the issue of nuclear proliferation in the Korean Peninsula, CCTV and other Chinese news media outlets will say Chaosien Peninsula, Bandau being a peninsula. And when I was in North Korea, actually, uh, the, you know, in 2017, just for you know a week of traveling, I, it was interesting to see how the North Korean guide, who was speaking in Chinese because I was in a Chinese tour group, she would use Chaoxian and to refer to North Korea, and then she would call South Korea Nam Chaoxian, which is to say that South Korea was just a southern province of the legitimate state uh you know of the korean peninsula that is of course north korea which is what she was referring to and um, it's interesting because in chinese you know people refer to south korea as Hangul. so i think that uh the etymology of chosun really places this ethnicity closer to the chinese north korean you know axis of socialism uh, you know, by nature. So
0: the Joseonjuk have a complex identity. They're caught between Korea, which is the ancestral homeland that offers both economic opportunities but also a second-class status and and China, which has become their current home and a sort of geographical census space in which South Koreans identify them. So let's start there. In what way are ethnic Koreans too, quote, different to be Chinese?
1: So I think this question goes right to the heart of the Chosun-jok identity trap because the ethnic Koreans, they have a really unique biculturality, especially when compared to the other 55 ethnicities officially recognized by the PRC. You know, there's no other ethnicity in the People's Republic of China that can go to another neighboring country so easily and find employment and also uh, make you know, a long term living there. And I think that because of that mobility uh, and because of the frequency with which the Chosun joke they move to South Korea and spend time there, it leads to that feeling of displacement uh, you know, when they come back. And this is an observation that I was able to make from being in Yanbian that I, I don't think a lot of people who researched the Chosun joke, uh, have, you know, often pointed out, which is that there's a big difference between the Chosun joke who've stayed in, in Yanbian and the Chosun joke who've been to South Korea and then come back. And what happens is the Chosun joke who Always, always stayed in in With you know, for example, like you know, uh, Mr. Piao, which is which is one of the people I interviewed in my article. You know, him, he and his wife observed that you know all these people coming back from South Korea, they become more selfish, they become more competitive, they become more savvy with their money, uh, but they're just different people to you know when they first uh, left uh, Yambian. And I think what this shows is that because the ethnic Koreans are so tightly connected to the Korean Peninsula and, you know, they in, in large part spend significant amounts of time there. That just means that they kind of have a sometimes a hard time in understanding, okay, who, who, are, who are we actually? Are, are we, you know, citizens of China or is it just an actual, you know, uh, sort of marriage of convenience? And are we actually still really Korean?
0: Back to the restaurant in Yanji where your piece begins, Yi yans pretty riled up. He's drinking soybean paste liquor. What's that like? Is it is it potent?
1: I, I think it's great. I mean it's easy to down like uh, soju, you know, the soju that we, we you know most people drink in South Korea, but it's much more rooty. It it's kind of like uh, soju mixed with some ginseng. And it's not that it's not as clean as soju, and so I think that um it was harder uh, to sort of get used to. But I think I at the time, I had to drink with Li Zhang Yan and his friends because they were offering it to me and they are, you know, 40 years older than me. And I felt that if i wanted to get them to talk then the best way was to just kind of follow their lead and pretend that everything that they were giving me was you know out of this world and extremely uh delicious
0: and the restaurant that you guys were hanging out in um you describe the city of Yanji as distinctly bilingual and bicultural so help us imagine that what's that like
1: oh it's wonderful as somebody who studied uh korean and and you know mandarin for a long time now um it was very fascinating to arrive at a city where basically every shopfront, every sign has the Chinese character and the Korean hangul written on it. And it, visually, it's very appealing. Uh, and I think that if, for example, we think of how the Yambian Prefecture has created certain exhibitions like the memorial to Yun dong the very famous uh, Korean poet that all South Koreans know. I think that's a fair kind of generalization to make because this yenbian born poet, he appears in pretty much all the elementary school textbooks. His poems get taught uh, to South Korean, uh, you know, middle school students. And the exhibition that the prefecture organized for him uh, in Yanbian, it is fantastic. It has Chinese characters engraved on on stone and bronze towers and it also has korean hangul engraved on these you know marble plaques and it's a very interesting contrast and it was very interesting to see you know a korean uh poets poetry you know written both in uh mandarin and in in korean and lastly and i think this is the most controversial is that there was a lot of ccp propaganda around the nbn written in korean and all i could think of was what if you take your stereotypical conservative sort of, you know, 50-year-old you know, South Korean man, the kind of man that, you know, he may, he may spend two or three days in front of the American embassy, you know, holding those signs that say, let's bomb North Korea. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. And what would he say or how would he react if he went to Yenbian and he saw all this propaganda, you know, uh, sort of glorifying the 12 core values of Chinese socialism in his mother, you know, native tongue, I think, you know, he'd probably go berserk. Uh, And so that was just interesting, you know, to think of how would South Koreans react to seeing their language used for the purpose of socialist propaganda.
0: Interesting. So E points to a couple fellow retirees at the restaurant, and he says, there isn't one of us who hasn't bought a couple of houses here in Yanbyan. We made all this money, but South Koreans still look down on us. So I want to know what this means in practice. Like... There's not a lot of South Korean investment in the autonomous prefecture of yanbian Or does he mean that Joe jok can't get any respect when they actually visit or live in South Korea? Or what?
1: I think what he meant to express was that South Koreans just assume that Joe Jok are poor. Because otherwise, why would they come to South Korea and do these manual labor jobs that South Koreans you know, dread of having to, to do? And what was interesting, uh, about Lee's perspective is that what he was trying to say was, well, hang on a minute. You South Koreans hardly ever come to Yanbyan and don't see how well we live after we've spent all those years you know, working in factories or in restaurants you know, in South Korea. And so Lee just felt sort of aggrieved because I mean, what I'm doing is making me rich. It's making me much richer than my, uh, the, uh, my friends and colleagues who decide to just stay in Yanbyan. And I've been able to buy an apartment, an apartment for my kids as well. And it's all because I went to South Korea and did these menial, uh, manual labor jobs that you people think in, you know, implies that I'm poor. Uh, and I think. That's what he was trying to say.
0: So, going back for a sec, Yanbian has the highest concentration of Joseonjok in China. There's like 2 million Joseonjok nationwide. And uh, is this community economically integrated at all with North Korea? What's that border like?
1: That border is very interesting uh, it, because before 1992, when South Korea did not have diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China and recognized in the Taiwan as the, you know, legitimate uh, government of the whole Chinese territory. The joseon community was very strongly in- economically integrated with North Korea. You had, you know, lots of North Korean businessmen coming into China and, and vice versa, actually, because when the Cultural Revolution happened in <clears throat> uh, 1966 uh, to 1976, China was in dire straits, you know, uh, Mao Zedong, he was trying to uh, collectivize the whole economy and he was really cracking down on the insurgent capitalistic traits of the Chinese economy, which meant that the Joseon joke living in Yanbin, that they felt uh, that, OK, our businesses are no longer profitable because you're not allowed to effectively run a private business here. And so they actually moved to North Korea, which at the time, between 1966 and 1976, was still more developed and it still had a larger GDP than South Korea. But this is all in the past because after 1992, a radical shift happened because South Korean businesses started to flow into Yenbian, And more importantly, the chosen joke of Yanbian, they started to always think of South Korea as the place to go and not North Korea. And it's interesting because Reuters, they wrote an article in 2013, which talked about how you know, there have been delegations of North Korean officials since 2010 coming to NBN and trying to meet up with, you know, commercial, you know, uh, leaders of the Chosen community and getting rejected by them because the Chosen community says, well, I'm sorry, but I don't think that business with you guys is going to be profitable. Uh, we'd rather just stick to the partnerships we have right now with the big South Korean corporations. And so I'd say that right now, the economic integration, it, it's getting it's getting smaller by, uh, by the year. Uh, with that said, what I did see with my own eyes when I was in, in, in Yenji was that there are still quite a few music schools uh, in, you know, the, the capital of the of the Chosonjo. Uh These music schools are run by music teachers, North Korean music teachers, especially sent from Pyongyang. There are still restaurants. Uh, which is also something that you find in Dandong, which is another, uh, Chinese city on the border with North Korea. But these are all very small kind of ventures. They, they're, they really don't e- equate to the kind of hard manufacturing, uh, trade partnerships that the Joseon-jook, uh, you know, commercial kind of leaders have with a lot of South Korean companies.
0: With a population of around 400,000, Joseon-jook are by far the single largest group of foreign citizens in South Korea. But unlike a lot of other foreign citizens of Korean descent, Joseon-jook can't get an F4 visa. This is the People of Korean Heritage visa, which allows residency and employment without restriction uh, just by proving your ancestry. So. What is the benefit for the South Korean government or South Korean society here with this sort of restrictive uh, uh, law? Is it just simply racism? And what does it say about how South Koreans view China?
1: I think that the main reason uh, for this law is that the South Korean government fears an ideological contamination from unrestricted immigration coming from Yanbian. Because given that the People's Republic of China has recognized the Chosunjok as its own ethnic minority, and also because the Chosunjok have never really displayed resistance or displayed revolt against the CCP. And as we all know, the CCP was the ally of uh, North Korea in the Korean War. It was the reason why, you know, the, the South Korean American UN army didn't manage to unify the whole peninsula, you know, back in, in you know, in when was it was in like 1955. And, and so what I think is meant in that very strange law is that by preventing Joseon uh, Joke from getting that F4 visa, what the, S- the South Korean government does is it, it forces Joseph joke to constantly uh, move from South Korea back to Yenbian, back to South Korea, and then back to Yenbian. And I think it really is to prevent some sort of, I guess, spy network or some sort of lobby that could be leveraged in South Korea for the interests of Beijing. And I think it's interesting because it really shows that there are some remnants of those ideological schisms that were so sharp and obvious in the 50s and in the 60s. And in that, in this case, in this particular case, you know that's still uh, playing a really huge influence in my opinion a
0: 2015 survey from the Korea Research Center showed that 6 out of 10 south Koreans in their 20s and 30s viewed joson jok as poor badly mannered or to be on guard against and a lot of this cultural xenophobia comes from south korean media and entertainment isn't that right
1: yes i agree uh, just last year august there was a small choson jok Protest in Derim-dong, which is uh, the Chosunjok neighborhood of Seoul, and what they were protesting against was the release of the film Midnight Runners. Uh, because this film, it's a kind of action comedy film, and what it does is, is it depicts two young uh, male cops who kind of have a hard time, you know, doing their their job, and they run into these villains who are Chosunjok, and you know, it also portrays the Chosen jok as criminals. There's a scene where the, the Chosen jok they are part of this kind of gangster circle and they kidnap runaway teens to, to then sell their organs. And I kind of understand why uh, the Ch- Chosen in Darington would protest against this because this movie was a hit. It, it, in a month, it had more than, I don't know, six million views in South Korea. And I think that this isn't just a one-off case. I mean, in 2010, uh, in the film Yellow Sea, the main character is a Joseon joke uh assassin, which is just very unlikely. it really doesn't reflect reality, but that's what the plot chose. And then in five years later in the movie Chinatown, you know, again there's the Joseon Jok gang uh, selling human organs, uh, which may be why Midnight Runners also decided to uh, the, you know present Joseon Jok as engaging in those kinds of illicit activities. And so I, I agree. I think that these kind of big films that get exposed to a millions of South Koreans really doesn't help with improving the perception that South Koreans have of the Joseon joke.
0: Wow. Okay. In your piece, you speak with Jin Xuanjing, a 40-year-old Joseon Jok woman who runs an Airbnb business in Yangji. And although she speaks only basic Korean, she's eager to share her 15-year-old nephew's bilingual abilities with you. So Jun Chun-lai explains to you that he and his buddies often use Korean and Chinese together in their daily speech. So what does that kind of language mashup sound like?
1: It's very interesting because as you know, Korean, it's, you know, it doesn't have any tones, you know, added to it. It's not like Chinese. Chinese is a tonal language. And a Korean can be very flat sometimes, except for the inflections that you add, you know, for example, but there's no actual tone. It's not like Chinese, where if you don't respect the tones, uh, then the word that you say is going to have a different meaning. And so to hear this 15-year-old combine the two together, it, it, it sounded very cool, but at the same time, it, it was very disconcerting because he said that his, when, for example, his friends, they want to get a taxi back home, they, instead of saying, you know, 우리 택시를 타자, which would be, you know, standard Korean. They say, 우리 타자. So you can see, he, he uses the Chinese or the Mandarin word for taxi, which is 추주체. And it's a very, it's, it's one of the favorite words for beginner level uh, Mandarin students because it has three neutral tones. So it's ch And so it sounds very, so almost robotic. And so he combined that 추주체 with 우리 타자. It's like using a very flat kind of language and then suddenly, you know, jumping to a very high pitched voice. And I think that was just very, I laughed when I first heard it. Uh, But it's great. It was very interesting to hear. And it wasn't just uh, this 15 year old who's speaking, you know, this kind of mixed, you know, Korean Chinese lingo with his friends. Adults also do it as well. There was one day where I went for a walk in the city and I saw a Chosunjuk hospital. And I thought that was very interesting. And I walked in and I tried to sort of somehow get an interview with one of the doctors. And he was having none of it. He was like, you know, you're you're, you're a nuisance. Please go away. And the way he said it was, oh, uh, so he, he, he said, well, right now in Korean. And he said, it's, you know, it's uh, our um, it's the time when we get off work. And that was said in Chinese. So and then he went back to Korean. And I, I think these changes, uh, it just really shows how unique the Joseon Juk's culture is.
0: Yeah, and you call this kind of language synthesis one of the testimonies to the relatively cooperative relationship between the Han-dominated Chinese Communist Party and the Joseon Juk. And in the 1920s and 30s, thousands of ethnic Koreans joined the communists, anti-Japanese forces, and thousands more fought with them against the Kuomintang, the Chinese Nationalist Party of Chiang Kai-shek, in the late 1940s. Tell us more about that historical relationship.
1: So the ethnic Koreans in the 1920s you really can't call them just jo joke i mean they were Koreans they it, it, it had all, at that time it had only been 30 years since they left the korean peninsula and so a lot of them they still cared you know and a lot about what was happening in the korean peninsula and after you know the annexation of korea by japan in, in 1910 you know that really just you know inflamed you know, a very uh, hateful feeling towards the Japanese. And that meant that they had something in common with the communists. But this isn't this isn't to say that the Kuomintang weren't also very anti-Japanese because they were. Both the communists and the Kuomintang were, uh, you know, anti-Japanese. But the key difference here, the, the reason why the ethnic Koreans joined the CCP, in, you know, in, in masses, whilst very few joined the Kuomintang, is because uh, the CCP, you know, being an adherent of the Marxist philosophy, they were, by virtue, very internationalist in their perspective, right? They were very sensitive about committing any sort of you know, Han versus of Han versus Korean uh, oppression, or Han versus any ethnic minority oppression. But the Kuomintang being very nationalist, that also made them very Han-centric, right? And which meant that they were more concerned with the interests of the Han ethnic majority than now you know, constitutes 90% of the People's Republic of China. Uh, whilst the communists being well-read in Marxist internationalism, they were sort of more aware that, okay, right, we can't treat this ethnic minority as if they are subordinate to us, nor can we ignore, uh, you know, their their culture, you know, because then we would be no better than the Japanese imperialists. And so I, I think that that is the key reason why you had so many Koreans at the time Joining the CCP and not the Kuomintang, because recruitment happened from from both sides. The Kuomintang really wanted chosen uh, uh, Koreans to join uh, their forces, but at the time the Koreans, being very sort of sensitive to any attempt from a Han majority party trying to sort of Sinify them, they thought that actually, the CCP would better represent their interests.
0: Yeah, and the special relationship even brought uh, the ethnic Koreans in China, the recognition of being one of the country's first 10 officially recognized ethnic groups in 1949, it also brought them some benefits like um, beneficial land redistribution after the Civil War. So how does this contrast uh, with how the Chinese Communist Party treated ethnic minorities like the Uyghurs in Xinjiang or the Tibetans?
1: Well... Uh, like most people who who follow you know, the big Western news media outlets like The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, it's very sad to see what is happening to the Uyghur uh, population in, in Xinjiang because right now they are facing a mass they are facing mass persecution from the CCP. There's no other way to put it. They're getting put into concentration camps. Which the CCP likes to call re-education centers, but really they are concentration camps because you're sending women and children there, not actual, you know, extremists. And I think Tibet is a similar situation. You know, the CCP has, uh, for decades now implemented really restrictive, uh, sort of disciplinary policies on, you know, Tibetans who argue for the independence, uh, of that region, as well as, you know, sending, you know, thousands and thousands of PLA soldiers to guard every Buddhist temple that there is. And that has obviously led to a lot of self-immolations, hundreds in the past decades from Tibetan monks. But then when you look at the way the CCP relates to the Choson now, it's completely different. It's the opposite. I mean, the CCP, what it effectively does is it props up the Choson joke or at least the Yanbian prefectural government. It props up the Joseon joke of Yanbian as being a model ethnic minority. I mean, I, I was very astonished to find that, you know, in 1994, the CCP, um, uh, one of the CCP's most powerful leaders at a time was Jiang Zemin, who would go on to become the, the chairman uh, of the whole, Uh, party four years later he created this award which is called the model ethnic minority award and in the first edition he awarded it to none other than the chosen job and they went on to win it another five times which is (laughs) it's just very indicative of how the ccp expects its ethnic minorities to behave which is don't cause rebellions don't talk about independence you know don't you know, engage in any kind of religion, you know, just be very hardworking, secular, dedicated citizens, just like uh, the rest of the Han.
0: The contrast of being a ethnic, min- an eth- a model ethnic minority in China and being a teen kidnapper and maimer in South Korea is kind of informative. Officially sanctioned historical narratives focus on memorializing the legacy of the Joseonjok or the ethnic Koreans who died fighting for China as soldiers of the people's liberation army. So what is the Joseonchuk perspective on that kind of historical erasure?
1: What's very interesting is that it seems from the sort of 20 or 30 people that I interviewed specifically on this issue is that they're okay with it actually. They're really okay with it. In fact, they will go out of their way to ignore a historical fact in order to say that, oh, we Chosonjok are Chinese. We are not Korean. Because nowadays, a lot of Chosonjok, especially from you know the, the older generation, so above I say the age of 40, they have a, a strong sense of resentment against South Korea, because you know a lot of their family members, maybe even they themselves, have suffered discrimination in South Korea, which means that then when they come back to Yeonbien they have a stronger sense of nationalism towards China and the Chinese state. And this is something that Christopher Denny uh, talked about uh, in his article written for The Diplomat. And it's very interesting because what I mentioned previously about the distinction that has to be made between the ethnic Koreans in China before 1949 and after 1949, 1949 being when the People's Republic of China uh, de facto, you know, came into being is ignored by the joseon joke because they don't want to say that before 1949 we were Koreans and after 1949 we were Chinese because that's too complicated. That can... It, when, you're, when you're teaching history to the Joseon-jok, to the Joseon-jok, it, 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 joseon you know, children and middle school students, it doesn't really work to say that okay, after 1949 we suddenly all became Chinese and we're low-along Korean. And so in order to simplify that, what happens is a historical erasure where from 1910, it seems, it's very vague, and I think it's, it's deliberate. It's so from 1910, you know, maybe the 1890s, you know, the chosen drugs start to get referred to as Chinese, which is a huge historical inaccuracy, you know, but it's necessary because, you know, you, you don't want to, in, firstly, you don't want to annoy, you know, the, the CCP, by saying that, no, you know, we were originally Korean and then, you know, the Chinese state englobed us and, and made us become Chinese citizens, because then that it sounds like you're sort of, you know, condemning the CCP in, in some way. But at the same time, because you have you know, a lot of chosen, they have this resentment against uh, South Korea. They will say that, for example, Yun dong you know, the poet that all South Koreans Um, at least, you know, South Koreans above 50, they all, you know, revere uh, and adore. This Korean poet is Chinese. He's Chinese. And this was the the curator of the Yundongju exhibition, you know, located in an ethnic Korean middle school in Longjing, which is a, a town close to Yanji. He said it. He said, Oh, South Koreans, they come here and they, uh, you know, they unfurl the Taegukgi, the South Korean flag in front of uh, the Yunnungju Memorial as if he's South Korean. He's not South Korean. He's Chinese. Well, what, are, what are they talking about? And when he says it, he says it with uh, a lot of bitterness. And I think that that sort of in, in a way encapsulates how Teol nowadays, they, a lot of them, because of of the discrimination that they're suffering in South Korea, that in a way distorts uh, their perception of history.
0: Yeah, one of the guys you interviewed was pretty disdainful about what he saw as as a sort of condescending rhetoric coming from South Korea towards ethnic Koreans overseas. For instance, the South Korean government publicly assumes that all overseas or out-of-country ethnic Koreans want to return to the motherland. And 51-year-old Piao Zhengguan suggests that that's not an entirely accurate conception. So what was his perspective about that kind of Korean nationalist rhetoric?
1: He thinks it's incredibly condescending. And the way he uh, talked about it was 대한민국, <sighs> really? They call it minggu," And what this means is the official name of South Korea is, you know, the Great Republic of, of South Korea. Obviously, you know, it, it's too long to always say it out in full. But what he was sort of um, mocking was this notion of the Republic of South Korean being great. You know, he was saying, firstly, your territory is is small. It, it's it's smaller than, you know, uh, a, a Chinese province, and secondly. No, I, I think that because, uh, P- Mr. Piao being a, somebody who identifies himself as an uprooted Korean, he's one of the few people I talked to that didn't have this idea of I am Chinese first and Korean second. That's a conception that I found, for example, in that, in that museum curator that I, I, I just mentioned, you know, where he's resentful towards, you know, South Koreans. So he says, no, you know, we're Chinese, you know, all of the Chosun joke. Uh, in the NBN since God knows when, they're all Chinese, but Piao, he is just more of a, uh, uprooted Korean. He is a Joseon joke who feels that I can't really say that, you know, China, the, any conception of the Chinese polity is my own identity. But I also feel that, you know, this, the way the South African government, you know, sort of lays claim to the idea that they are the only representative of the Korean polity, right, is very arrogant. Because what Piao, I think, was trying to suggest, I mean, you know, we didn't engage in academic debates, but if I were to infer from, you know, from his words, like, what conception of of sort of the Korean population he had, I, I think he meant to say that, you know, the South Korean government just happens to be a state occupying half of the Korean peninsula, and it has a mostly Korean population. But there is another state, you know, that has sort of the same nature. It occupies another half of the Korean Peninsula and it also has a mostly Korean population. And there's also a prefecture who has had a Korean population for a very long time. And why is it that they have to be sort of fenced out in, as being, you know, Chosonjok, as being this ethnicity rather than a people in its own right?
0: So, do you see this idea of Joseon-Juche identity, this notion of China first, Korea second, changing at any time in the future?
1: I mean, I can see the notion of China, you know, of of, of Chinese culture, Chinese nationalism, of loyalty to the CCP becoming ever more dominant in the minds of the generations to come. You know, of, of the future generations of, of uh, Yambian's, Because the CCP right now, it's really increasing its control over those autonomous regions. Autonomous region being where a region where there's a significant uh, percentage of the population that is an ethnic minority. And this includes Yenbian. It doesn't matter if Yenbian has been awarded the model ethnic minority award, you know, five times, six times. It, It doesn't matter. The CCP is always on guard especially with, you know, the extremist attacks that happened in 2010 that have justified, you know, the persecution of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, uh, it, it just affects the entirety of CCP ethnic minority policy in a way that is in, it can be seen in, in and to a certain extent, because if you look at the decrease of, you know, Korean uh, middle schools and high schools in, in Yanbian, it's, it's, in, it's really astonishing. They used to be maybe a thousand or, or, you know, a thousand or so before, you know, the turn of the, uh, of the 21st century. And now they're a little over 34. So if you think about a decrease from a thousand to 34, I mean, that's astonishing. And the reason why this happened is because Joseon uh, households, they're feeling an increasing amount of pressure to adhere to the Han curriculum, you know, the Han majority uh, curriculum, which is obviously taught in standard Chinese, and it's essentially geared to prepare a six-year-old child all the way up to the age of 18 for the Gaokao, which is, you know, the university entrance examination. And if you think about uh, this issue from the perspective of a bicultural Zhou you know, teenager, I mean, the longer he spends studying any topic in Korean, the less time he has to catch up with the other Han-majority um, you know, classes uh, and you know, compete in the Gaokao. So what I think more chosen drug households will do is that they will start to restrict the use of Korean as a way of making sure their children achieve the necessary level of Mandarin in order to have the best possible grade in the Gaokao, which will then give them the best possible uh place uh you know in a university in China which will obviously then give them the best possible job that they could hope for and because of, of this you know educational and career pressure i really think that chosunjo uh, are only going to think of themselves more as chinese uh with the added bonus of being able to speak speak a bit of korean but i think that this Bit of Korean is going to get smaller and smaller, um, you know, every 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 decade or, or so, because you're already noticing how a lot of joke youth, and this was something that Mr. Piao uh, observes with a lot of sadness, is that these youth, they can't really speak Korean. You know, they they sort of they can say a few sentences and their pronunciation sounds natural, but they can't actually have a conversation. Um, but it's funny, the best joke students in You know, Yanji's high schools, they seem to have the worst Korean. This was something that Mr. Piao sort of, you know, said uh, that he himself experienced. And I think because of that, uh, this notion of China first, Korea second, it's only going to become more skewed, you know, towards the, you know, Chinese state and towards, you know, Chinese culture and towards Chinese language and gradually just leave behind, you know, Korea and Korean culture.
0: Eddie Park is a China Studies scholar at Peking University. You can find his work in The Diplomat, Bolivian Express, and right here at Korea Exposé. Eddie, thanks for speaking with KEcast.
1: Thank you very much, Andre.
0: That's KEcast for this month. This episode was produced by Korea Exposé. I'm on Twitter at Andre Mar Goulet and follow us at Korea Exposé. Korea Exposé is an online multimedia startup featuring underreported and critical perspectives from Korea. Find new episodes of Cast on iTunes and YouTube and at koreaexposé.com. Music on this episode is from Creative Commons. Check back wherever you found this podcast in early December for the fifth and final episode of the second season of Cast. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening.